Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we focus on elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we believe that that allows us to draw more power and apply them to our lives better, and we certainly need all the power we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have with me a returning guest from last season uh, and a, a dear friend of mine that I respect so much. Uh, both as a person and a scholar. Uh, this is Dr. Jennifer Clark Lane, who I've, I've known since I was an undergrad, and we were taking Ugaritic classes together. And then uh, she went to Claremont to do uh, her graduate studies. And uh, then we both taught at BYU-Hawaii together, where she not only taught religion classes, but spent a lot of time in uh, administration as well. Uh, and now is back as a fellow at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Studies. And so I'm just glad she's made some time for us. Thank you. Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, thanks, Carrie. It's a delight to be here with you. I'm really excited to study these uh, scriptures together with you today. Yeah, well, uh, we, we are blessed to have you with us, and we hope to have uh, Jennifer on a bit more. She's so good with the New Testament. And I'd also like to recommend uh, her book on the covenant. Now I'm embarrassed. I can't remember the exact name. Oh. Is this about? Uh, can you tell Find, us the name? Sure, Finding Christ in the Covenant Path: yes. Ancient Insights for the Modern World. Which uh, I love that book. We'll try and remember to put a link to it in the show notes. Um, uh, you guys would uh, find a lot of uh, great stuff in that book as well. So what else should we know about you, Jennifer? I guess we should say she's married to a really wonderful guy, Keith, who also taught yes. religion at, at BYU Hawaii. We, we had a great time. We were there together for 19 years, and we've been back here for close to two years now. And so I'm loving this chance to do research and writing, but I also love teaching um, religious education and a lot of times with the New Testament. And so I'm excited to have a chance to dig back into these texts together. So it's a great, great opportunity to be here. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, we'll help you scratch your teaching itch since you're in a research-only yes. place there. So Yes, exactly. Uh, well, good. Well, good we, we'll benefit from that. So, Well, these uh, this the chapters we're covering today are some of the coolest chapters in all of Scripture because we deal with the resurrection and, and what happens thereafter and what could be more important than that. Uh, and and so uh, we, of course, would love to hear what has really spoken to you or made it real for you. So why don't you take us where you'd like to go, Jennifer? All right. Thanks, Carrie. So um, so well, today we'll look mostly at John chapter 20 and Luke chapter 24. And on the one hand, these chapters are very particular to a time and to a place because they give these unique witnesses of Christ's resurrection. But on the other hand, uh, there's very universal experiences, and I think we can get insights in how we today can come to behold Christ in our own lives, in our times of trial, the sense that when we have times of sense of loss and despair, and we can learn from how did Christ's early disciples come to find him and to see him, and how might that help us come to know how to find him and to see him in our own lives. So I, I love these passages and what we can learn from them not just about who Christ is and what he has done in overcoming all things through the resurrection, but also how, as we come to see him, our lives are transformed and, and he, he lights our lives and brings us um, hope and helps us live in the, the time of trial. We may find ourselves in a different way. 
I think that's so significant. And 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 as you say that, you know, I've, I'm thinking about these uh, three identities that uh, President Nelson asked us to have uh, or suggested are right. our primary identities. And one of those is, is a disciple of Christ. And uh, I find that if I can uh, identify with these disciples as they come to understand who Christ is and and follow him, that it helps me be a better disciple. If I'm conscious of that, it helps me be a better yeah. disciple. And I do think that as we learn to read the scriptures with this, the skill of identification, that it changes our, our reading. So rather yeah. than just reading it, something that's removed, but connecting ourselves, Nephi uses the word likening yeah. something unto ourselves, but it is this identification, this way of, of seeing them as people, but seeing ourselves in their their experience that can can help them become models, as you say, for discipleship, because that's what we want to keep developing and deepening our discipleship as as followers of Christ. So true. And that's that's part of what what this podcast is about. That's part of what I think of when I mean the scriptures become real is that those people right. become real and, and we relate to them. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's jump in. OK, so let's start with. Um, so in chapter 20 and and I don't want to go into this, but it's. So this is John. Chapter 20. This is John chapter 20 um, that, that. Trying to put together each of the Gospels to have a perfect harmonization of what happened Easter morning may not be possible, but I don't think it really matters um, to sort of who was there when. And um, it doesn't worry me as much as trying to read each of them as a witness of um, what it, what that particular gospel is testifying of. And so here the witness focuses in a particular way, unlike any of the other gospels, on the experience of Mary Magdalene. So rather than talking about all the Marys or all the women that came, um, if you see verse one, it talks about the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. So she's the focus from this particular way of telling the story. And she comes early before um, daybreak and um, she then runs to, to Peter and to the other disciple who Jesus loved, usually understood as John, and is in, this, in the sense of panic. So they've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they laid him. So she's already experienced the loss of her beloved teacher and friend. And now it's compounded with the loss of his body. So he's died and now she can't even go to um, prepare and finish, finish the preparations for burial. And so you see Peter and John coming and running. And so, you know, kind of, this is a familiar scene where they look, they see the linen clothes lying. He's not there. And then um, we know by verse eight that they, in verse nine, that they leave. And, and it's a little, I think eight and nine are a little ambiguous. Um, sometimes we stop with just eight and said he saw and believed. But if you go on to verse nine, it says that um, as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So when you read the whole passage, it it may not it may not be saying that they knew that he was risen. They just knew that he was dead. He that and that he was gone. That that may be part of you know just a, 
because part of what we want to get is a feeling of loss. And I think to me, when we read in, in that context, we realize that they, they, that none of the apostles or the disciples have completely internalized and processed Christ's own witness that he would rise again. And so what their experience to truly understand what's happening in chapter 20 and in, in Luke 24 is just this feeling of he came, he died, and he's gone. And now what do we do? I, I think that that's really where they're at. Um, I would when, agree. When we see them here, that 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 there's a kind of a a, a lack of comprehension and that's leading to feelings of panic, maybe despair, um, just sort of a, almost an existential crisis. Like, what is the meaning of our lives now? We've yeah. completely given ourselves. What are we supposed ourselves. to do now? Yeah. yeah. That, that this has been, he has been the focus of our lives. We put all our confidence in him. He's gone. And now it's just like this sort of, and a lot of people experience this when a loved one dies, even if they're people of faith, that that it can be uh, just their, their whole world is, is shaken or some other form of loss. And so I think to, to relate to this experience of, of loss helps us then go into Mary's experience with, um, with a deeper sense of empathy and connection. Yeah. So that, uh, go ahead. Uh, maybe before we go there, uh, I'd love to touch just on a couple of those earlier verses just a little bit, Please. just because it's part of what's so real to me. So I know that we're, we don't really know who wrote the gospel of John. Mm -hmm. um, I, I lean, I'll just say I lean towards it being John sure. um, it'd be partially because of some of these verses, but if not, then I think it, it must've been written by some of his followers that, uh, had access to some of his his writings, or at least had heard him tell these stories very well, because so many of these verses have in it that little personal detail that yeah. suggests this was a, an event that John really remembered and really remembered well, right? There are all sorts of stories that I can remember. Yeah, we did this and then we did this, but there are some that were just so vivid because of, of the emotional reaction you have and the importance it was to you that you can remember, well, I did this and then this and then this, and you can picture it in your mind. And these little details like that it's it's Peter. So I'm uh, like you going to assume that the other disciple is John. Uh, we don't know, but that that's, seems to be the case. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read it that way. And I'm going to read it as if John were writing yeah. it, even if we're getting to this third, fourth hand. However, um, but it does have that feeling of an eyewitness testimony. It really those those these details. I agree. Yeah, because because he remembers that Peter and he went. If this is John, and they ran together, but he was faster. He remembers. I got there first, <laughs> right? That's that's yeah. not the kind of thing that you include if you're just generally writing a story that's uh, isn't you in it, right? Yeah. Uh, he remembers. No, I I got there and I looked. It was just me trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, and so on that, I mean, that to me, that's one of those details that just tells you where John is. Like he ran as fast as he could because this again was so existential for him. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, but he doesn't go in and then Peter comes and, and, uh, he, he goes, uh, and they see the linen clothes and just this little detail that, uh, the napkin that was about his head is, is separate from the other. Right. right? And, and you can just tell. 
John remembers this incredibly vividly because of how his mind. Yeah. And I think it's because of what you're talking about. They were so sure who Christ was. And then they had assumptions as to what that meant and where it would lead. And those assumptions had just been split wide open and, and thrown to the ground. Um, And, and they just don't know what to do. Uh, what their, their, everything they thought their life was about seems turned on its head now. Uh, and then you get this piled on top of it. His body is gone and you can just see this, how vivid this is for John, partially because of the existential crisis he's in, but I would guess also partially because this is what leads to his finally understanding, oh, this is what's happening, right? The end of this story is how we get to, right him understanding so i i love the has, the, yeah. the detail that vivid detail that comes yeah. from his moment of panic as as you said yeah and there are these moments in life where everything is i think imprinted in our memory so deeply because it is completely out of the ordinary that yeah. the, the days that pass where it all blurs is because it's routine but when something is like fixed sharply it's because it it stands out and it's highly emotional and i I think this absolutely fits that pattern of of our experience as human beings of something that you you will never ever forget and how they felt when they saw that empty tomb and they left and they went again to their own home and then that brings us back to to mary and so we have mary magdalene who had had gone to get these apostles they came and saw what she saw which is he's not here and now she's alone and yeah. this is is really you know to because you know sometimes you want company when you're grieving and here she has nobody so she she is there and um it's and, kind of a pitiable and, yeah. scene when you think about it to just picture her she's probably kneeling uh, by that tomb, yeah. weeping uh, by herself, yeah. not knowing what what's next. Just, I mean, just traumatic. This sort of, yeah, like having seen him die, and now you can't even finish burying his body because it's, you know, it's been ripped away by some, yeah. as far as they know, um, some malicious group of people. Um, and so there's yeah, this just is this, that insult this, to injury she's just absolutely yeah. yes and so just i think you need, we can think about those moments of being distraught and then read that you know we when we look at this word weeping i think that's what what she's feeling is yeah. this overwhelming so she stood without at the sepulcher so she's outside um and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher now she gets a little bit of a shock because this time it it's not empty, but what she sees is unexpected. So the, these two angels in white um, sitting where the body had been, one at the, the head and one at the feet. And to me, these are these are really beautiful and moving words. But at the same time, she I mean, I'm just trying to think about how she would experience them, because for her, everything has fallen apart. And now they're asking her, woman. Why weepest thou? And this is like for her, it's so obvious. She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. So it's like 
this is like, of course, this is why I'm weeping. You know, like she's she's just like, you know, why are you even asking? And so this is just this heart wrenching scene. And and, and likely these are I mean, if we're going to try and make this real, likely yeah. these are words that are hard for her to get out. These are words spoken in sobs. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, and and so that that she's it's like so this is this question of well, why doesn't she recognize Christ when he appears? Well, one might be. You know that there's sometimes there's a spiritual something that's held back, but it might also be she's like weeping so hard she can hardly see that she's just, you know, it's really overcome the sort of the physiological effects of of overwhelming grief. And so we in verse 14, she she speaks to these these angels who she probably like just as you say, just you're pouring out her heart, but, but, but having a, maybe a hard time spitting out this, you know, in sobs, this language. And so she's racking, you know, her body's being racked with um, this grief. And she says this, she turns back again. So from looking into the tomb and now it says, we, we read that she saw Jesus standing and knew not that was Jesus. And again, we don't know exactly why. Could it be that there's a little bit of a veil over her mind? Could it be that she just can't think straight because it, that she's not really paying attention? You know, it, it, her eyes are filled I'm, with tears. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That she's just, you know, like she's not interested in anything else. So there's like this figure that that she's recognizing, but not identifying. And then we see this is where, where things are going to start to turn. And, and this is as they're starting to interact. So Jesus saith unto her in verse 15, woman. So this exact, he's repeating the question of the angel. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? So I think maybe she feels that her grief is being taken seriously. Yeah. Um that that he recognizes that she's in pain and that she's experiencing loss. Yeah. Yeah. This and, isn't the just what why are you crying? Yeah. This is okay. I can tell you're looking for someone wrong. Welcome, What's it? wrong? Yeah. yeah. That I can tell that you're that that you've you experienced a loss. Whom seekest thou? And so she probably thinks this is this kind person that just happens to be around. She's supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him. Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. So I think holding out hope that maybe he's not far, maybe he just got moved and can be retrieved without, you know, that th there's wanting things to be made right again, wanting to at least have his body back. And so, so that's, that's the most you could hope for at this point yeah. that, um, and then what she's being offered in this next verse is going to change everything. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Yeah. And that is where her eyes are open that she, um, we're talking about his sheep know his voice and she yeah. knows his voice. 
So and he knows her, and that seems to be what yeah, makes the difference, right? That identification, that connection of her loving discipleship and his love for her as a disciple, as a faithful saint. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. So they, there's this mutual identification. And at that point, the, the grief, the loss, the panic, it, it all disappears. So the world is different because he is there. And, in verse and, seven, and I love that that's please. the 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 term that she uses to identify, like that it lets you know how she has thought of him yeah. when this is the first thing out of her mouth. Right. Oh, oh, my master is back. He's here. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine the flood of relief and joy that is is conveyed by that one word, Rabboni. Right. right. It's it's incredible to me. Everything's fallen apart, and all of a sudden, everything's come back together again. So. And this, as I think this point that you make is so important because it puts her discipleship first, yes. because the po point of having a, a, a master is being a disciple, that you mm -hmm. learn disciple master relationship is a, is a relationship of apprenticeship. It's a, it's a relationship of learning and that she's spent these years with him as a disciple and that she recognized him as her master. Yeah. And of course, as Latter-day Saints, I always get students who would ask, oh, but we've heard about, we don't know. We don't know if there was anything more to their relationship yeah. than that. We just, it it's not church doctrine. Um, we don't know. We don't yeah. have enough data to say one way or another. But this text does point to the relationship being that of a disciple and yeah. a master. So that yeah. I think is, is significant. And which I think is powerful also because it makes it a universal experience because that's what we're being invited into once we make covenants. So like everybody's a child of God. And then when we make covenants, we're all children of the covenant. But the third one, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's something we have to keep choosing every day to, to live our covenants, to be faithful. And, and so she identifies him as her master because she's lived as a disciple. And so that's her identity. We're seeing that right there in that verse. Yeah. And that being in that relationship is what makes her whole and what brings her world back and gives it a whole new dimension again. Because he's not only there, but he's there in a new way. And 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 we see a little bit of that in 17. And again, I think it's, it's confusing again because of the language in English where Jesus says unto her, touch me not that's not a good translation yeah <laughs> and people get confused because this idea of oh maybe and i've often heard well he isn't really resurrected yet because she can't touch me doesn't have a body that is not true he is yeah. resurrected she is the first witness of the resurrection yes but he he's saying you have to stop holding on to me you can't keep me here so that's yeah. that's really what it means is like you have to let me go yeah, that that's the tense in in Greek, right? That it it's you can't continue touching me, which I right. think you're right. Is saying, I, I, the way I picture this is that she has run and either wrapped her arms around his legs or she's in an embrace yeah. or whatever. She's holding on to him and she can't stop weeping and she can't let go. And she doesn't want to uh, let go. <laughs> after, yeah, yeah. Uh, and after a while, he just says, right. I, "I can't actually stay here all day." Yeah, um, this is I I have to go, and and that's. I think there's a sense is that my life is even here, but he's pointing. And this is what's amazing about who Christ is. 
he's teaching us about discipleship because he's teaching us about obedience. Yes. He needs to leave because the father has some place for him to be. And so he needs to do that. And so I think he's helping her and he's helping us understand that discipleship is being willing to do what we're being asked to do. Even I mean, he'd probably love to stay there, but he has to go. And so he's letting her know that. Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, again, and, and in that verse, I send unto my father and your father and my God and your God. So this is this kind of, I mean, it's almost extraordinary, the kind of equality that he's, yeah. he's laying out here, the, that his relationship to the father is, can be her relationship to the father. Yeah. And it's a continuation of the last things yeah. he was teaching in his mortality. Yeah. It really is extraordinary. And that is, is again, his witness that he's come to bring us to, to, to make us back at one with the father, to, to bring us back to the presence of the father and to allow us to have the kind of relationship, the father that he has through him, that we can have that. Um, it, it's, it's all really encapsulated very tightly, but it's, it's beautiful. Wow. And, and so, I think as as yeah. members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I I'm not a hundred percent sure I have this figured out exactly right, but I'm 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 confident in the general idea. I think we have some some unique insights to put into this because uh, on the cross, as he's as he's dying, I mean he, he says it's finished. I mean we can't know the exact order, right. but it seems like he right. says it's finished, and then into Thy hands I commend my spirit, which gives this idea that he he's going to the Father right then. But in fact, we know he goes to the spirit world. Right. And and he organizes, we know from section 138, he organizes the the work there. And so it would seem that the order based on that and then this little phrase, uh, it, it would seem that the order is he goes to the spirit world, he's resurrected, and then he goes to the father in his glorified resurrected body. Yeah. I, I, there's a chance he goes to the father in between and then comes back down and now he has to go back up to the father. I don't know, but it seems like that's the order, which to me yeah. is incredibly touching because it seems like what he wants as he is dying is to be with the father. But even then he goes first and does the father's will. No, my mission's mm -hmm. not done yet. I have another phase, which mm -hmm. is here in the spirit world and then to be resurrected and have that witness started. And then finally, I can have what my heart was yearning for, which is to be with my father again. Right. And and so, as you say, it, all throughout the, the entire experience, we see him submitting his will to the fathers, which is so incredible to me. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, and that's this, this witness of what discipleship is that he's, he's showing us through his example of how do we live out our covenants of being a, that alignment with God's will and that he he's doing the father's will and he's teaching us how to also align ourselves with his will, just as he aligns himself with the father's will. And I think yes. it's a beautiful illustration of even his post-mortal um, ministry. He puts this obedience to continuing to teach, to continuing to minister first that he's doing yeah. He's on the he's on the Lord's errand. <laughs> yeah, he's on his Lord's errand, which is his father, and that's yeah. um, amazing. In fact, he could be saying right here to Mary, "Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business?" Right. That's another way of saying that, right. which is what he was saying from the very from beginning. The beginning. So these sort of bookends to yeah. his his mortal ministry, right as it begins, and this is right as he's ending and leaving 
to 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 go back to the father. So it's a beautiful yeah. way of of framing this. And at that point, Mary is going to then go tell um, the disciples again, but this time she has much, much better news. And so she's going to go and share this. But before we go on and see Christ coming to the apostles, that's later in the day. It's probably in the evening of Sunday. Let's flip to Luke 23 and uh, sorry, Luke 24. And this is the last chapter of the gospel of Luke. And it's very rich. It has a lot in it. But um, one of, to me, one of the most moving parts of it is this kind of parallel where after Christ ascends the father, he appears to, and they seem to be disciples, not apostles, because they're going to go back later to the apostles. So these are two followers of Christ who he meets up with. Um, let's start perhaps with Luke 24, verse um, well, verse 13. So there are two of them, and they've they've heard at the beginning of the chapter sort of the same events that the body's gone. And so now it's we get this sort of like zoom in close up of how I think it's representative of how everybody's feeling. Yeah. So we have disciples, apostles, everybody that that this captures the mood. And so they were they were in Jerusalem and now they're like, oh well, let's, you know, like this is now what do we do? And they they're probably maybe they're going back to some place where they have family or that, that there's some reason for them. They, there's no point in them being in Jerusalem anymore. Yeah. So and and I think you're right. Luke does such a fantastic job all along of capturing the kind of every man. Uh, mm -hmm. all along the way and i think that these are the everyman this this is yeah. uh, these two I th it's a real story but he's chosen this one because it represents what everyone was going through and what everyone needs to go through yeah it really is and then this is again this is where we can identify by by seeing ourselves in our moments of loss and grief in them so they're they're walking it's several miles away and they're walking and they're talking Grieving as well. Now, they may not be like on the floor, bawling their eyes out. But so, I mean, maybe they weren't as close, but in any case, they're they're trying to process this. So in verse 14, they talk together of all these things that had happened. So they're just trying to make sense of like, what was this all about? And, you know, did we get this all wrong? We thought he was this Messiah. And, you know, it, it's just this loss, confusion. And they're 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 walking and they're talking and so you see in verse fifteen that same kind of the processing things they commune together they're reasoning together they're just trying to make sense of it yeah. and Jesus draws draws near but again they they can't see him for who he is now again is there a veil being drawn over their eyes or is there something about a resurrected body that can can choose to be recognized or not choose to be recognized. I, I don't know, but it says here, their eyes were holden. So they were, they yeah. were somehow being prevented from recognizing him. Yeah. So he's walking with them. He's talking with them and, and he's asking, I think this is sort of as a, someone who's just joining them on their journey of, he can tell. And again, I think there's a, that sort of empathy that Mary felt as well, that, What's making you so sad that he's he's genuinely trying to understand 
that they can, I think they sense that he cares. Um, what manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And so we have the two of these disciples talking. One of them's called Cleopas. And, and here he seems surprised. It's like, don't you know? <laughs> yeah. How can you not what, know like, what, what is going on? <laughs> so art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things which are come to pass in these days? Like, haven't you heard about Jesus being crucified? And, and so it's almost like he's playing along. He's like, he's, and I think it's therapeutic. I honestly feel yeah. like he's trying to help them process their grief. And he, he probably knows they need time to talk about it before he can help them move to the next stage. So he's helping them work through and make sense of like, what are they feeling? What's making them sad? He's listening. He's very, very good listener, which tells us a lot about, you know, what we're being called to do as disciples. So he's, he's genuinely concerned. He's interested and he gives them a chance to say, so they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet and mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And then verse 21, I think is the most poignant yeah. moment because it reveals not just with these two, but all of Christ's followers why they're so disappointed because they misunderstood what it meant for Jesus to be a Messiah. And so they say, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Yeah. And, and, and by that, they the, don't mean a spiritual yeah. redemption. No, they they all had hope that Jesus was going to come to rescue the kingdom of, to reestablish the kingdom of Israel to drive out the Romans and and to, their vision of what a Messiah was, was this triumphant king. And so instead of defeating the Romans, he was killed by the Romans. So like their vision of triumph was just had disintegrated. And so the, the, we trusted that it had been he, he which should have redeemed Israel, meaning military political victory. And it didn't happen. And so now they don't even know what to believe it anymore because what they had hoped for didn't happen. And so they're just at a loss. Yeah. And I would imagine it's, oh, yeah. go ahead. No, keep no, going. I mean, they're, they're, they're just telling him. And I think he, he's like, he knew it of course, but I think he needed them to be able to say what it was yeah. that was bothering them. And, and I think they, and by extension, all of his disciples, and I think including Peter, John, and everyone else, yeah. were probably trying to sort through, okay, we felt all these things. We had testimony to us. We were so sure he was the Messiah. But yeah. they were also so sure of their own assumptions of what that meant. Yes. That yes. this didn't fit together for them. And they're trying, they weren't at, yet at the point of saying, maybe my assumption was wrong. Right. They were just, I think, trying to say, how does all of this work? He, he was the Messiah, but he wasn't because he died and we're still uh, controlled by Rome. So how can yeah. those two things work together? And I think they're just so confused. Yeah. And this is, I think we would talk about today as a faith crisis yeah. where it looks like the things you believed in aren't true and not recognizing that part of what you believed was an incorrect assumption. 
And because yeah. your incorrect assumption didn't come to pass, you know, it didn't hold up water, then like everything, you throw everything out the water. You know, they're just yeah. like, it's not worth it. I, I give up. And yeah. that's that moment. And I think they're all at like, nothing makes sense anymore because he didn't become the Messiah we were, we wanted him to be. And so they're, they're, they're at the sort of at the edge of losing hope. And I think that's where he finds them is yeah. when they're about ready to, to, to give up. And, and maybe away. I agree. And maybe just while we're on this, I'll refer my audience back to, if you didn't have the chance to listen to an interview we did, I think it's what we did in Mark nine with Emily Robinson Adams, when she talks about a faith crisis she had and how it took her a while to get to where she recognized that it was based off of some wrong assumptions about who God was. And then things could change. Uh, I, I think that that's exactly what we have going on here. Yeah. And and if it's all right, I think I'd, I'd like to maybe share just kind of uh, an experience I had that that helped me kind of also see this possibly from what the Savior is thinking uh, a little yeah. bit as they're going along. So there was a time when we lived in Israel where we decided to take our children. We, we I, I don't know for sure, but there's a decent chance that uh, I think it's a really, really high chance that this place called Moza is uh, ancient Emmaus. And uh, you can walk from Jerusalem to Moza. In fact, much of it is a very beautiful walk now where there are places for kids to play games and things like that. So we said, let's take our kids on a walk to Emmaus so we can think about this story. And, you know, I had young kids, so, you know, sometimes we're flying kites and doing things like that to keep them entertained. But there were times where they were walking along all right, and I was able to really think about this. And I was trying to put myself in their place. But at one moment, I then kind of thought of the Savior hearing them. And I mean, he knew already, but hearing them uh, yeah. saying, basically saying, we really thought that Christ would come to conquer our enemies, meaning Rome. And I could picture him having just gone through all that he had just gone through, having this kind of thought, oh, you think too small. If yeah. you knew the enemies, I was really conquering. Rome is so small compared to who I was really fighting with and who I really conquered. And that's uh, worth, you know, I think so often we're myopic in what we want the Savior to do for us. We think of these things that are just right in front of us that seem like big deals, and they are. I mean, having Rome mm -hmm. control you is yeah. a big deal. It affects all sorts of elements of your life, just like all sorts of other things we're going through. But if every now and then we could see it from the Savior's point of view and, and see him saying, oh, if you only knew what I'm really doing for you, uh, I'm I'm doing something much bigger than you have ever imagined. And I, I think he went through that at this this moment. I mean, mm -hmm. not that he had never thought of it before, but he no, had to no, have thought but, of, oh, if you could just understand yeah. what I was really doing for you. And and that is really, I think, what makes this moment so tender is that he doesn't give up on them like, well, you didn't get it. So I forget you. I'm walking yeah. out of here. You know, yeah. like he works with them. He meets them and he meets us where we are. And he lets us share our concerns. They shared their concerns. But then the fact that they're willing to keep learning and keep thinking, because we often have, when we go through this sort of faith crisis moment where things don't match the reality we had imagined, that we have to rethink and rethinking is another, you know, we don't think, use the word this way, but it, the verb to repent is that sort of rethinking. We have to, yeah. to 
come up with a whole new model for reality. And, and so he's helping them with that. And so, you know, they, they share these experiences. They, they say, well, the women, they went and they didn't find a body, you know, they're sharing everything they know to be true from their life experience. And he's listening. And, and so when he responds to them, I think it's, 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 um, yeah, they've even sounds... heard from James or Peter and John, right? It yeah. seems like they, as others, yeah. some of the others ran and saw that he wasn't there. So they know the and whole so deal. They, and they thought they knew everything. They thought they they had the big picture, that, that they were the most informed that anyone could possibly be. But, but Christ wants them to rethink, to dramatically, radically rethink their the assumptions that they have. And the, the language in the King James sounds a little harsh where it says, oh, fools. <laughs> um, the footnote gives us a, a little hint that, you know, the Greek is softer than that. It's just, and the sort of like being unwise, I think, is assuming that we know everything, assuming yeah. that our disappointment is based on all the information possible. And instead of thinking, no, be wise enough to realize you don't know everything. And maybe you might be mistaken about the assumptions you had about what it means for Jesus to have been the Messiah. So, and part of what he's asking them to do is, is go back. He's using sort of this, what, what they trust and what they know is the, the prophecies from Old Testament prophets. So like, let's think about them again. Let's go back and rethink what the prophets have testified. And what he's turning them to is a different reading of these prophecies. So they're reading the prophecies of a military messiah, a victorious political messiah. And he's making them going back and saying, maybe we think that assumption ought not, in verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered? So shouldn't the messiah be a suffering messiah, not a political messiah? And that he needed to suffer these things to enter into his glory. So yes, there's glory, but it's not glory that comes from political victory, military victory, it's glory that comes through suffering. So sort of little echoes of Isaiah 53, maybe. Yeah. Um, that that And so what he does in verse 27 is he works with them. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they're walking, they're talking, and he's getting them to rethink based on what they already believe, which is the, the prophetic words from, from scripture, from their Old Testament, from, well, our Old Testament, it's their only scripture. But, um, and, and so he's helping them rethink. And they're, they obviously are enjoying this because they don't want him to leave. When they get to Emmaus, they want him to stay, come abide with us, have, have dinner with us. And he goes in. And then we have this moment of recognition, just like with Mary, her name like opens her eyes here. It's interesting what opens their eyes. So it came to pass. He sat at meat with them. So verse 30, and he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And so to me, it has this sort of sacramental echo that, that the ordinance, this sort of echo of the sacrament, this echo of the ordinance allows them to see him for who he really is. They've spent all day long with him, but now they can see him as they see him breaking 
blessing and breaking the bread and giving it to them. And then he's gone. Like he's done what he needed to do. He's, he's reframed their perspective on who, who he was as a Messiah so that his death was no longer a defeat, but now is a victory. He overcame death and hell that he they can see it for what it really is and that that he's with them and i think maybe that that's this little echo of um the the sacrament the lord's supper is a sense of i'm still with you through this ordinance and then he doesn't need to be with them anymore he's gone yeah yeah uh, it's just an incredible story yeah just incredible and and, and what's beautiful, if you look at verse 32, and we know this language because abide with me, the hymn is taken from these verses. Did yeah. not our heart burn within us when he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture? So they're looking back and they're recognizing the influence of the Holy Ghost. They're identifying the spirit, testifying of the truth that they learned. And then, so they're, they're again, it's the sort of repenting as rethinking creating a new mental map that the old model didn't hold up. They had to get, they had to let it go. And that, but they, they, they've been able with Christ's help to, to create a new way of thinking about him and who it, what it means to be a disciple because who he is, is not just a political military Messiah, but he has overcome all things through his suffering and death. Yeah. Yep. And I, and I love, I mean, I, I say, I have to say, I can put myself in their place in that there are a whole bunch of times where in hindsight, I can say, oh, all right, uh, that's what this was really all about. And if I think about it, I, I, I felt the spirit, I should have recognized that, but I'm glad I'm recognizing it now, even if I didn't recognize it at the time, which would have made things easier. Um, yes. I, at least I'm recognizing it now. And I think that's so, it's such a universal experience that we go through these moments of just overwhelming, whether it's pain, suffering, loss, fear, doubt. I mean, whatever we're going through, the Lord doesn't leave us alone. He's working with us just like he was working with them. But sometimes we can't necessarily see it clearly until it's all been resolved. We look back and say, oh, look what I learned going through this. Yeah. And now you know, now I see the Lord was working with me through the experience. He didn't leave me alone. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's what they're, they're recognizing. Oh, he was with us all day long <laughs> through this hard, hard time. Yep. Yep. So, and we so, were feeling it. We just didn't realize we were feeling it at the time, which sometimes happens. Like you're so caught up in the moment you afterwards, you have to say, ah, I, I was feeling that. Yeah. And to, to see his hand in our lives. And so they go back and they're going to bear their witness and that they testify. So you see in 33, 34, the Lord is risen indeed. And, um, and so we have these witnesses. Yeah. And I love that at at verse 33, they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Like this was so exciting to them. They're like, okay, we just walked all the way here. We're heading back (laughs) right now because we've got to tell everyone else about this. And that's and, such an important point. It's it's, it's evening, right? They're having yeah. their evening meal, and that just their 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 fatigue, the darkness, whatever it is, doesn't bother them. Like there, there's a focus that's come when they know who Christ is, that He lives. Everything's different, and they will do whatever it takes to to share the good news. Yeah. And that's what they do. 
So now, I, I'd love to get your thing. opinion on this because at least yeah. the way I read 33 transitioning into 34, yeah. but it, it could read, I think, a couple of ways, but it, it sounds like they go back. And so then we, we might have to reconstruct our timeline and go back to John yeah. 20 in this or something, but they go back to find the 11 and the others who are with the 11, right? So Judas is not there, but mm-hmm. the other 11 and other people that are with the 11. And it seems to me like it's saying that that those people the the group that they find are saying yes. that yes the lord is risen and simon has seen him and yeah. then they can add hey we saw him too right? right but but that hath appeared unto simon yeah suggests that that they're learning simon saw him i i think so too i do think that the the what you're getting here is that they're sort of sharing sort of sharing the witnesses like we, yeah. you're not the only ones that that he is risen so here are the chief apostles peter simon peter has has been a witness and then later we're going to know okay they're going to learn from mary so you know you have these multiple the concatenation of it's all building of the different witnesses coming together and what an exciting thing that must be to just have that whoa hey i mean just thing after thing after thing like it's okay anyway sorry we'll get back to that exactly it it is that that sense of the that everyone's going through this loss, this grief. Um, but it's interesting. We, we stay here in 24 for a few minutes and we'll flip back to, to, to 20 of, cha- of 20th chapter of John. But they're gathering, they're sharing their experiences. And then again, resurrected bodies don't follow the same rules. Um, Jesus appears. And so he stands in the midst of them. And again, there's this sort of tension between his invitation, peace be unto you. They were terrified or frightened. Suppose they, they're, so they're still not processing, even though they've heard yeah. he's risen. They're like, they, they, they're having a hard time seeing him for who he is. They think yeah. that. Well, and he's, he's just spirit. appeared, like you said, like just yeah. boom. So, and they're like, it's that's, like, that's Whoa. not normal. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the, so maybe they think of oh, this ghosts appear, spirits appear. And so again, how does he help them? And I think it was just, to me, it's a pattern. How does he help them see him for who he, he is? How does he help them overcome the, the troubled hearts, uh, the the fears, the doubts, the questions? Again, we have this, this beautiful image, and it echoes what we see in, in 3 Nephi chapter 11, um, where Christ is appearing. They're confused. Yeah. They think he comes down, and he's like, oh, spirit, angel. You know, they don't know, yeah. even though the voice of the Father has said, this is my son. They still think it's an, um, an angel. And it's not until he, he, the witnesses, and this, I think this idea of a token that, that they're a witness that the wounds in his hands and his feet are a witness of who he is, that he is, he has died and he's overcome death. Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And then they they can see for themselves, and then he eats with them. So he knows, like, I'm I'm a real person. I've, you know, resurrected, yes, but a body still. And so he's able to be handled. He can eat food. And um, so that they, they have their own witness that. But, but look with me in, in 44. So we've seen this pattern of, Confusion turning to peace, 
as they behold his wounds, a beautiful, beautiful image. But then he, he still teaches them. And he says, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. He's doing the exact same thing with the apostles that he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus is that yeah. he's going back. Let's you thought you understood the scriptures, but your understanding was faulty. Let's go back and rethink. So you understand a suffering Messiah, not a victorious political Messiah. And, and then, and he says unto them, he teaches them very clearly in verse 20, 46, he said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And then, and then that this mission and, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name unto all the nations. So that this is the beginning. It's not the end. And now you're going to go and take this word of that we can be changed and we can be freed from sin through him. That he's overcome death. He's overcome sin. And now this is what the rest of your life is going to look like. It's not over. It's just starting. Yeah. And that's that's a powerful, a dramatic reshifting of perspective. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very sh huge shift in perspective, <laughs> right? I, but I, I think you're right. He's able to teach them. So that they find and you and you get John saying this all along and and later they understood it later they understood yeah. it finally okay right this seems to be one of those moments where they finally understand oh this right that he seems to have been trying to explain it to yeah. them all along but yeah. they hadn't had something so dramatic that allowed them to make such a dramatic shift in their assumptions yes and it took losing Christ yeah. to force them to be ready to change those assumptions. And then when he comes back, now their mind is open enough that he yeah. can show them what it's really about. Absolutely. And I think and, before and we leave, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, no, go no, ahead. No, no, just to tell, I think it tells us a lot about sometimes if we have false assumptions, that, that, that sometimes a crisis moment can be part of how the Lord is helping us move to see life and to see him, especially more than anything, more clearly. Yeah. I mean, Joseph Smith said this a number of times in a number of sometimes colorful ways that one of his greatest struggles was to get the saints to leave behind their old ideas or assumptions so that he could teach them the true things of God. I think one time he, uh, let's see if I can remember this, he said it was like getting them to uh, leave behind their old ideas and accept the new truths was like trying to split uh, logs using, I think he said, uh, uh, cornbread for a wedge and a pumpkin for a dodger, which is like the, the yes. uh, hammer, right? Hammering <laughs> yeah. Yeah. the wedge and there's no way yeah. it's going to, to split yeah. the wood. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think and, that's, that's what the, the apostles were going through. And it, yeah. then if our premise that we've been going off all along is correct, then it means that we're in that same place that God is trying to teach right. us some things and we need to open our minds to him. And sometimes that will happen through a crisis and, and sometimes we can open it ourselves well with the help of the Holy Ghost. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that whatever it is we're going through, that, that we need the Lord's help. And yeah. he helps us in different ways. But he's yeah. he's helping us rethink because the invitation to repent is this invitation to to think differently, to feel differently. So we have more faith, we have more confidence. 
And um, we see, again, the same thing, which is flipping back to, to John 20, where, you know, we have another account of the apostles. Well, be, before him. we go to John 20, yes, if it's please. all right, I just want to, sure. bef before we leave Luke, uh, I just want to kind of, I guess, set us up for uh, next week. Um, I'll have to check the chart, but I think it's next week because you have this, uh, you know, he, he does this transition, like you said, and tells them that the gospel is going to go from here to everywhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, then we get this, this little thing uh, in verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And obviously, in other accounts, he tells them to go to Galilee, and they're going to go to Galilee and come back, and it's hard to put all this together. But I think yeah. this is Luke's little hook, because his next big letter, yes. which we call the Book of Acts, yep. is going to start with the story of when they're endowed with power from on high uh, in Jerusalem. And so this, right. uh, if we keep this in mind, that will help us transition into Acts a little bit better, I it think. It is. It's a li I think you're absolutely right. It's a literary bridge. Yeah. To the prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, to the actual fulfillment of that in the beginning of um, the Acts of the Apostles. And so, yeah. so it's really important to see how these two texts are linked and, um, and that this is Christ died and is risen for this reason above all other reasons so that we can get his spirit and become through the gift of the Holy Ghost more like him because we could never do it without. This is the fruit of his death and resurrection is these spiritual gifts that he wants to give us that we're yeah. partaking of through the ordinances and covenants. And that's, I mean, the, the gift of the Holy Ghost is supernal. It's, yeah. it's so important. And, and I think uh, that, that President Nelson would be happy if we highlighted the, the last verse, uh, because this is their preparation for that time in between when he tells them this <laughs> and when they will receive the power from on high. Verse 53, they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Right. That's that's their Amen. preparation. That's how they get ready <laughs> for the day of Pentecost. And right. that's a that's a good way for us to be preparing as well. I think President Nelson has been encouraging us to do that. So. Yes. And the, this, I think, is that their lives are reoriented. So rather than despair, they live in worship yeah. and they're open to God rather than having this feeling of loss and everything collapsing yes. on them that now it's, you know, the life is, is come back again and it's going to come even more fullness with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And, and I think that also can help us give them a benefit of the doubt when we say, oh, those apostles and the disciples, they were so stupid. Why couldn't they like yeah. get it? I think, you know, we have, we have to remember they didn't have the gifts of the Holy Ghost yet. So yes, they have Christ teaching them, but um, yeah, that it's, it's hard to rethink things without that, that divine gift. The Holy Ghost is designed to help reorient our minds and our hearts. And they didn't have that yet. They can have the witness of the Holy Ghost to tell them what Christ said was true but as far as really getting into and realigning our hearts and our minds it, it it can't happen the way it needs to happen without that spiritual gift yeah yeah we have the benefit of the gift of the holy ghost and of hindsight and and yeah. they didn't and we probably should cut them right. a little slack and yeah. i love a phrase you just used it may be my motto it might be my new motto for my life at least for the next <laughs> while you, you said they lived in worship what a fantastic way to live 
to live in worship. That's that's a good I, I'm going to I'm going to try and work on that. That's a, a fantastic yeah. phrase. Thank you. It's well, it's something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about with my own work and what worship means. I think it's a lot deeper and broader than than somebody thinks. So that's a beautiful passage to end on. And I know we, we want to wrap things up. Um, so on, in chapter 20, I think we see a lot of echoes of what we saw in 24, where he appears to the um, the apostles. Again, they're afraid. You see that in verse 19. Um, they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid what happened to Jesus might happen to them. And Christ comes to bring them peace. Peace be unto you. And again, we see this pattern of him showing um, the wounds. And um, so that there's this, this sort of ability to understand who he is and yeah. and who they, they can be with his help. Um, I think John also gives us a week a week later with Thomas and Thomas, poor Thomas, you know, we were doubting Thomas. He he wasn't there. He didn't, you know, at least in this count, he wasn't able to be part of it. He wants physical proof. And um, but when Christ comes back again to them, he invites Thomas to to find out for himself through that interaction. And I think it it tells me something significant where because again this echo of of third nephi 11 this personal invitation reach hither thy finger and behold my hands reach hither thy hand thrust it into my side be not faithless but believing that the ordinances whether we're talking about baptism the sacrament the temple they all have to do with physical material the ordinances are always a way to connect with christ through our bodies and, yeah. and I think that that is really significant that he wants us to, even though we're not with him the way that these apostles and disciples were, but he does want us to have a connection to him that has a physical dimension. And um, yes. so I think it's worth pondering of, of how we connect with him and how he's inviting us to connect with him in each of the ordinances. And I think it might go back to why we want to be in the temple as often as we can. You know, we certainly don't want to miss sacrament meeting any Sunday because this we're through the ordinances, we're given a chance to to um to have a connection that can give us that grounding and that confidence. Verse 19, uh, when it talks about the disciples, it's the first day of the week. So uh, there there we have Sunday, right? And um the doors were shut. When the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, right? And so they're behind doors because they're afraid. So if we're trying to put ourselves in their their place, let's remember that besides having their world ripped apart, they're still afraid that something might happen to them. We know from John that they had plans to kill uh, Lazarus because he was too much of a, a witness, and uh, so they they're they have all sorts of fears that they're dealing with, and and I. I don't know that there's something doctrinally important uh, to that, but there's something uh, from a, a human human point of view yes. that's important, uh, recognizing everything yeah. that is going on with them. And then I just want to touch on, just because it's a theme that we've touched on so many times in, in the podcast, uh, that we get in verse 21, then Jesus said unto them, peace be unto you, 
as my father hath sent me, even so send I you. And we've talked about that as recently as in uh, doing the intercessory prayer and so on, but we've talked about it a number of times. This is a pattern and a theme that Christ sits on again and again. I, I'm sent by God. I send you. You go get others. You bring them to me, and I bring them to the Father. And so even it seems to be the first thing besides peace, right? He's, he, as we get in Luke, he has to tell him, okay, don't be afraid. It's just going to be all right. Yeah. But here in John, then the next thing he tells them, the first thing he tells them is to remind them, God sent me, and now I'm sending you. You are my emissaries the way I'm God's emissary. And that's so so profound. And I hope empowering for all of us to recognize that is our job, to be sent by Christ like he is sent by the Father. And it is, it's, I think it's core to what it means to be a disciple of Christ is when we have our own witness, when our lives have been changed, and we can then go out and share that good news with other people, that Christ is our redeemer and that he has overcome all things and that we can have peace through him, we can have hope through him, and that things he will make things right, even yes. though we go through times of, of loss that that peace will come and yes. that that's the witness that we have to share just as they had to share it. Thank so, you. My pleasure. And, and maybe as we finish, I could share a passage outside the new Testament. This is a, um, from the doctrine and covenants. I, I think it, that the a, savior just taught us we should bring all the scriptures together in one. So that seems like one. a good idea. All right. Well, yeah. we'll wrap up with, and these are his words. So he's speaking to the saints early on in the restoration, um, even before the church is organized. So this is um, speaking to Joseph and Oliver in April of 1829. But the the message echoes to me what he was teaching his apostles and disciples after his resurrection, and also what he's trying to communicate to us in our day. And so this this message of don't be afraid, yeah, what, what and, section are you in? So in section six, the, okay. the last part of section six, and part of he's saying, again, this uh, I'm sending you out in my name to do good. Fear not to do good, my sons. Whatsoever you sow, that shall you reap. So again, do good. Don't be afraid. Fear not, little flock. Do good. Um, whatever happens, let earth and hell combine against you. If you're built on my rock, they cannot prevail. So he's he's saying you need to go for our, as disciples um, you may be struggled, you may be afraid, but he says, behold, I do not condemn you. Go your way, sin no more, perform with soberness the work which I've commanded you. And then we get to these last two verses. And I think this, this picks up this theme we've seen from Mary, from the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the apostles on Sunday evening, and, and Thomas, and it, it brings it back to us. And the invitation is still there, where Christ says, Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. Behold the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So he's pointing us to himself. And that as we look to him, if we have confidence in his atoning death, in his glorious resurrection, um, we'll know that he's overcome all things. And so we just have to, if we're struggling, because doubt's real, fear's real, but he's saying, 
this is where you focus. Like when you're going through those hard times, don't give up, keep looking at me and particularly behold. And so this, the, the witness of his having overcome all things is manifest in these wounds and um, the prints of the nails that, that it's designed as a way to communicate his love and that he's overcome all things. And I think that's what those who interacted with him felt. And he wants us to feel that as well, that we can have, we can trust that, that we can go forward with peace in our hearts and confidence in him, knowing that he, he truly has, he's redeemed us from death and hell and that everything will work together for good through his power. And I know, I know that's real and I testify of it in the name of Jesus Christ. Jennifer, you have just made all of this so real. Thank you so well, much. My pleasure. It's uh, that's, been a joy. Uh, there, there's just so much power as they become real like that. So thank you for that. Uh, I know I've been edified and my discipleship deepened uh, and I have things I want to go do and do better uh, because of this. And I hope that our audience has had the same uh, experience. And And at the same time, I'll say, I want to go do more and do better. And yet at the same time, I feel comforted for where I'm at and that yeah. God can help me get somewhere else. So thank you for that. And he will help us. And that is good news because that is. It's, it is, it's, it's, it's a journey, but, but it's not, he's going to, he's going to keep walking with us just as he yeah. walked with them in their times of, of trial. He's, he's not going to leave us alone. Yeah, it's a guided journey. So yeah, yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Amen. So thank you for that. We hope that the, our audience has had a similar experience to, to what I've had. And we uh, hope that you'll also find someone else who maybe could be uh, helped on the, this journey uh, that we all go through together and, and that you'll share uh, either the podcast or at least the ideas you've learned uh, with them. So thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time on The Scriptures Are Real. <laughs>